the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. My country tears Sweet land of liberty of Beyonce. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob France. It is eight minutes after the hour of nine o'clock. It is the eighth morning of the ninth month in the year of our Lord, 2023, and it is a free-for-all Friday! <laughs> and we are ready to go, rocking and or rolling on AM 1420, The Answer. You know what schadenfreude is? You probably do, because I've talked about it on this program a few times, and you may have just encountered it in other elements of your life. I am I am suffering a great deal, or enjoying a great deal of schadenfreude this morning. I guess it depends on how you look at it. See, if you don't mind the idea of taking pleasure in the misery of others, then you'd be celebrating the schadenfreude that you feel in a time like this. If you feel guilty about taking pleasure in the misery of others and it makes you feel like a bad person, then you're suffering through it. So it just depends. And I guess I'm having a little bit of both of those feelings because I am enjoying some schadenfreude right now uh, in a few different ways. A Democratic Party leader in Minnesota who hates cops who wants cops disbanded he wants she wants police departments to be to be completely dismantled her words dismantled 
And this, of course, came shortly after the George Floyd situation up in Minnesota back in 2020. But this has been one of the leading voices to to disband and defund cops. They're bad for communities. They're bad for schools. They're bad for minorities. They're bad for people, but generally speaking, uh, or more specifically speaking, minorities. This is what she said. She's been very outspoken about it, and it didn't just stop in 2020. It's been going on for the last three years. And so when she was carjacked and severely injured, according to the story she told in uh, on Facebook, when she was carjacked on Tuesday and posted this on Wednesday, I couldn't help but think to myself, oh, my God, I hope they didn't even respond. I hope they left her there to suffer the thugs and did not respond. I just, I'm just taking, when you have violent crime, and she said she was violently carjacked by four very young men all carrying guns. And by the way, she just called them very young men. Those were the only uh, modifiers that she used, the only adjectives. She did not describe them in any other way, and I wonder why that might be. She did not identify them by how they looked, including things like, you know, height or weight or, you know, color. She didn't do that. I think there's probably a decent reason why, given her previous statements about police and minorities. But I digress. The fact of the matter is she suffered this, according to the report. She suffered this violent uh, attack by four young men who assaulted her, broke her leg, gave her, by her own words, deep lacerations on her head, as well as bruising and cuts, and feeling rage against the lack of accountability against the criminals. That's what she said on her Facebook page, right? And all I could think of when I heard this story, and it was actually this morning that I found out about this before the show, prepping for the for the conversation today, all I could feel was, oh, my gosh, I hope they left her there. I hope when she made the 911 call, I've been carjacked and injured, I need police, I would love for the dispatcher to say, I'm sorry, is this Shivanti? Yeah, well, sorry, but they've been dismantled. There are no police officers who can make the response. Or for the uh, dispatcher to say, uh, "Okay, make, making the radio call. Uh, we've got a uh, we've got a, a carjacking victim uh, who is at this location. This location, uh, units, please respond." And I would love for the response to be, "Oh, was that Shivanti? Well, um, sorry, we can't respond. We've been dismantled." I would love for that to have been the case. I took guilty, schadenfreude-esque pleasure in learning that she had been violently attacked and needed police help, and I wished they hadn't responded. Now, I'll tell you what I put on my Facebook page in response to that. People like Shivante Sathanandan, S-A-T-H-A-N-A-N-D-A-N, Sathanandan is what I'm going with here the second vice chairwoman for the Minnesota Democratic Farmer Labor Party, who has called for the dismantling of police, all of them. People like her can make those calls and make those critical comments and demand activism against cops because she knows one thing. She knows that the cops are better than men like me. She knows that she can criticize cops, condemn cops, 
ridicule cops, try to get cops to get fired, dismantling cop departments. She can do all of those things knowing, though, that if she is ever in need of one, they will never hesitate. They will come to her aid anyway because they're better men than men like me. It's what makes them cops. It's what makes a cop take the oath to protect and serve and then live up to that oath and protect and serve even those who may hate them. And that's what, that's what this was all about. Shivanti, Shivanti Satanandan, the second vice chairwoman for the Minnesota Democratic Farmer Labor Party, said on Facebook Wednesday that she was violently carjacked by four very young men all carrying guns. She said they assaulted her in front of her children outside their home in broad daylight. She included in her post a photo of her head injuries and reported having the broken leg and the deep lacerations, as well as feeling rage. Quote, these men knew what they were doing. I have, it's interesting, she calls them men, but then she also says very young men, which would lead me to think teenagers, but we'll see. These men knew what they were doing. I have no doubt they have done this before, yet they are still on our streets, in all caps, killing mothers, giving babies psychological trauma that a lifetime of therapy cannot erase with no hesitation and no remorse, she wrote. She continued, I'm now part of the statistics. I wasn't silent when I fought these men to save my life and my babies, and I won't be silent now. We need to get illegal guns off of our streets. Catch these young men who are running wild, creating chaos across our city, and hold them in custody and prosecute them, period. That last part also in all caps. So I find that very curious. First of all, she, she cannot resist the political shot there by saying get illegal guns off the streets. It doesn't matter if those guys had guns. They didn't shoot you, did they? They beat you. They broke your, le- broke your leg. They gave you the cuts and bruises and lacerations. It's not about the guns. It's about the individuals. But she couldn't resist the shot at the Second Amendment. Then she talks about what they did to her. And on that part, she is right. But let's read that last, uh, that uh, second part of that sentence again. We need to get illegal guns off the streets and then, quote, catch these young people who are running wild, hold them in custody, and prosecute them, period. And I have to ask myself, maybe you know the answer to this. Who catches them? Who's supposed to go out and catch these young people? In her words, catch them. Are we talking about social workers? Shouldn't so isn't that what the dismantle the police crowd send out psychologists, psychiatrists, and social worker workers to respond to criminal activity? Because then they can kind of get to the root cause of what's making these people do these things, and then perhaps you know counsel them. Now she doesn't want that; she wants them caught and prosecuted. Period. Well, who would have to go and do that catching? Could it be police? Look at my face, she wrote on Facebook. Remember me when you were thinking about supporting letting juveniles and young people out of custody to roam our streets instead of holding them accountable for their actions. That last part in all caps. Wow. What, a, what an amazing turn of events this is. 
What a, what an incredible adjustment of attitude. What a change of heart. Suddenly, one of these left-wing, Democrat, Marxist-supporting uh, individuals who believes in no cash bail, letting people out. out this is, that's a war on the poor to make poor people try to post bail if they've been arrested and charged with a crime. No cash bail, uh, light sentences, defund and dismantle police. Suddenly she wants them caught, these criminals, and held accountable and prosecuted and off the streets. Wow. And this is where the schadenfreude really kicks in. She wrote, Thank you to the incredible Minneapolis 4th Precinct officers, Mayor Fry, Chief O'Hara, paramedics, neighbors, friends, and DFL family who all came to our aid during this terrifying experience. I'm so grateful for this community that wraps us in love, end quote. I, I just, here she is thanking the police officers she did not want to exist and has worked very, very hard as an activist to stop from existing, at least in the, in the manner that they were. She's grateful for a community that wraps us in love despite her own delivery of hate on a regular basis for the men and women charged with protecting and serving the people in that community. In June of 2020, quote, We are going to dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department. Say it with me dismantle period the period minneapolis period police period department period she wrote as allies what can we do right now listen and learn from our black siblings and then amplify this message right now in this moment mpd has systematically failed the black community they have failed all of us it's time to build a new infrastructure that works for all communities If you are still disagreeing with that basic fact, I'm not sure what to say to you, she wrote. I'm proud of the radical leadership and organizing of Jeremiah Bay Ellison and Philippe Cunningham. We need to support them and all the city council members and electeds who are working alongside them. Today, the Minneapolis City Council has an emergency hearing to approve a court order outlining immediate changes for MPD, Minneapolis Police Department and a framework for systematic change. She applauded efforts in a different post to remove cops from kids. Thank you, Minneapolis school board members, for getting this done exactly as it should be. MPD have no place in our children's schools. She didn't want cops on campuses as school resource officers to protect kids because cops are the true danger. All I know is that she needed cops, and cops being the good, dedicated servants that they are, ran to her. And they rescued her. <clears throat> and they got her medical medical treatment. And yes, <clears throat> excuse me, those same cops are the ones who are going to be going to work now to solve the crime, to find the individuals, to prosecute the individuals, to bring them in and arrest them and have them prosecuted, rather. They will cooperate with district attorneys and trying to get justice for her as a minority that she said police don't serve, these cops will do what cops do. 
And I hope that the rest of the defund the police, the dismantle the police, uh, reimagine policing, and all of the others that took millions upon millions, probably collectively billions of dollars away for police departments all over some of America's biggest cities in response to the George Floyd thing, that now have led to severe understaffing in each of those cities. And uh, they took millions and billions away collectively from police departments, and they gutted departments. People were laid off. Other individuals left. They had to leave. They forced retirements. And now, understaffing in big cities, including Cleveland, Ohio, has led to a rampant surge in crime of people like that. The four thugs that carjacked her. They're out there, and there are thousands of others like them all across this country out there doing those things with little to no fear of being caught. Little to no fear because of the understaffing of the police departments. And because even if they do get caught, they're going to be set free on no cash bail. They're going to be able to continue to go out and do what they do. There's just no fear of punishment. So... Like I said, I heard the story, and I got a little bit of a, I got that uncomfortable feeling where I just thought to myself, good, you so-and-so, you deserve a taste of the violent crime that you don't think police need to be there to, to, uh, to, to rein in, to bring under control. I hope they just ignored your call for help, but I knew they wouldn't because that's what makes them cops. All right, it's 923. Let's do our pledge before we do anything else. We've got a free-for-all Friday show. We have a couple of guests that we're going to talk to uh, about a couple of important things. Um, but we do want to hear from you, too, on a free-for-all. Whatever your topic is, dial it up at 216-901-0945. But for now, stand, face your flag, put your hand on your heart, and join us for our pledge. If you can't stand because you're driving, that's okay. You can just do the uh, hand-on-your-heart part. But face your flag if you have one and join us. If you are a believer in dismantling and defunding police all because of your own political message, well, then maybe this flag doesn't exactly represent what you think it does. You don't have to pledge your allegiance to it. You can instead take a knee uh, over there next to that unemployed quarterback. For the rest of us, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice. For all. 9.24, right back on Always Right Radio, AM 14.20, The Answer. Giving you reason in the age of unreason. Always Right Radio with Bob France and The Answer. All right, 935, great Friday morning to you. Appreciate you joining us. You know, Tunnel to Towers is coming up. The run, uh, the 10th run now in Medina is coming up on Sunday. We're going to talk to Chris DeRico a little bit later in the program. We talk to him every year in support of Tunnel to Towers. Of course, that's the uh, phenomenal run that is actually also um, repeated uh, each year in New York City when uh, – uh, Stephen Sills, uh, another hero, um, found out what had happened at the World Trade Center. He was on his way to go golf with his brothers. He uh, got on the other side of the uh, uh, the battery tunnel, uh, realized what had happened, get, grabbed his gear out of his trunk, uh, all of his firefighting gear, and then ran about the distance in a 5K, about a little over three and a half miles, back to the World Trade Center, and then started climbing stairs to get uh, to the victims to try to help them. 
and uh, that, of course, was was lost, as were so many others when those towers came down. Uh, it's a remarkable story. We tell it every single year, and Chris will be with us in the uh, third hour of the program to talk about that. Now, when we talk about sacrifices and we talk about uh, heroism, Travis Mills is just a remarkable story. He's uh, he's a U.S. Army Staff Sergeant, retired now from the 82nd Airborne. Airborne. He calls himself a recalibrated warrior, and that's pretty good. Uh, I, I immediately thought of actually uh, Steve Austin and the $6 million man from my childhood. Uh, we can rebuild him. They rebuilt him in a remarkable fashion after he lost not just both of his arms, but also both of his legs or portions thereof when he was um, when he was uh, critically wounded by an IED in Afghanistan in April of 2012. He has spent the last now, what, 11 years trying to not only recover himself and, uh, uh, and, and rebuild his life in such an amazing way, but to impact others through the Travis Mills Foundation. And uh, we're joined now by an American hero. Travis Mills, thank you for coming on our program. How are you, sir? Well, I'll tell you what, I'm doing great. What a wonderful introduction. I mean, I just had a bad day at work. But I appreciate you saying those nice things, and uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here, sir. A bad day at work. Yeah, that's uh, that's that, that's an understatement of the year. Travis, tell us uh, tell us the specifics about what happened to you and when you realized what had happened to you. Absolutely. So I was in Afghanistan on my third deployment to, um, you know, overseas with the 82nd Airborne Division. Um, happened to come to a short halt and we decided to set up some security and we slept the ground with a minesweeper but um unfortunately the the minesweeper missed um the bomb and marked it safe i put my backpack on the ground and after my backpack landed on top of the bomb uh it went off and and it kind of tore me apart you know uh, my right side was completely gone my left leg was still dangling but but basically you know it was there's no salvaging and then uh, they had to cut my left hand off two days later, but uh, 14 hours of surgery where doctors and nurses just worked on me for just, you know, so long. And the thing that gets me is that they could have given up and loosened up one tourniquet, but instead they gave blood from their veins to me to keep me alive. And I think that's just incredible that they believed in my life being, you know, saved and thought that it mattered, even though I was laying there with, you know, terrible injuries with, with no real, um, plan for the future, no understanding what my life could actually be. So just a really, really incredible uh, amount of work that went into me because people believed in me. First of all, it's amazing that the first thing you do is give credit to the surgical team and those who uh, who help save your life. Uh, you know, uh, cause, and and I, I second that, of course, every step of the way. But it's what you experienced that is uh, that is the true heroism here. And and Travis, I asked you uh, my second part of my first question to you was when did you realize what had happened to you? Because I'm assuming you were knocked unconscious when 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 the backpack hit the hit the mine and and the explosion happened. Uh, I'm I'm guessing you weren't laying there feeling all of that. When did you wake up to find out that you you know that you had been you essentially now were missing four limbs? Yeah. So I actually was awake. Um, you were I, uh, so. Yeah, and, um, you know, I, I hit the ground on my left side of my face. I rolled over. I saw the aftermath. My medic came up to me. I told him, don't worry about me. So I figured I wasn't going to make it anyway. And in my line of work, I've seen a lot of guys die for a lot less injury. So I thought, you know, it's, it'll be over quick. And, you know, there's no reason to try to save me. But he ignored me and, and went ahead and worked on me. And while he was working on me, I radioed my lieutenant with my left hand that was still kind of there. And I told him to, you know, send the medic that he had because we had other guys injured. Um, and then they... You know, worked on me, gave me a uh, fentanyl lollipop, 
so the pain wasn't as as uh, bad as you would imagine, and some you know some shock, if you will, or adrenaline kicked in. And then they got me on a helicopter, and um, on the helicopter with two other guys that were hit. One guy was yelling out in pain. He had every right. He was definitely injured. And I motioned for the pilot to take his helmet off, and I got my left arm free from the strap, and I brought it over my head, you know, as to say, take your helmet off. And I told him, you know, give my guys water um, and tell them they're going to be okay. And I winked at them, you know, through, like, this protective, like, Vaseline they put in your eye. Mm-hmm. Um so it was like beer goggles. And then I got to the hospital and they rolled me down the hallway. And as I was going down the hallway, I kept trying to sit up. <laughs> and about the third time I tried to sit up, the nurse pushed me down for the third time, looked at that nurse and I said, you know, quit touching me. I'm fine. Like, leave me alone. I just got to get back to my guys. I'm not sure what you're doing. And I said, I just got to get my feet back underneath me. And she looked at me and said, you know what, Sergeant Mills, I don't know how you're still awake right now, but you need to go to sleep. And they, uh, they actually pushed fluids in me to knock me out. And that's when I looked at that nurse and I said, my little girl, am I ever going to see her again? Cause my daughter, was six months old at the time, and I thought, there's no way I'm waking up from this. And, and then they worked on me. So, so no, I, I actually, I, I, yeah, I was awake. I, I'm, I'm blown away by that. I did not know that part of your story, uh, which is why I guess I asked it. I, I kind of imagined you yeah. waking yeah. up in a, sur- you know, in a surgical bed or in a hospital bed after a surgery and then being told, you know, Travis, here's what happened. You know, your legs are gone, your arm is gone, and the other hand uh, it. It's just uh, it's something that's impossible for anybody else to fathom. And what's even more impossible, Travis, is that your first concern was not for yourself, but for your your guys, your other guys saying, I'm not going to make it go help them. And then being on the on the chopper and being take care of these guys. I just um, where does that come from? Do you think? I mean, is that just is that just God at work? Are you are you a man of faith? Have you been a religious man? Where does that kind of concern and compassion for others, despite your own incomprehensible uh you know, physical situation at that point, where does that come from? Well, I'm definitely, definitely a man of faith, but I also, um, it's all about the mission first, it's all about the guys, all about, you know, making sure that they were taken care of. And in that situation, um, war movies actually helped me. And I know it sounds silly, um, but in my head was a movie, Saving Private Ryan. And in that movie, which is a great movie, one of my favorites, that's, you know, I, uh, I don't shy away from war movies. I actually love them. Um, was the medic got shot in the stomach, and the medic cried out for his mom, and he begged for his life, and ultimately he died. And I told myself in every deployment, no matter what happens, I'm going to not be that guy. At the end of the day, it's not my choice what happens to me, right? It's, it's in God's hands, so I will do the best I can. But instead of freaking out, because I think if I would have freaked out and I would have been screaming and yelling and got my heart rate up, I probably would have bled out in the battlefield. But instead, I just stayed calm. I said, well, this sucks, whatever, you know, and, and I kind of – you know, my my, uh, my medics, they were so surprised about how I reacted because, yeah, it was a terrible thing that happened. But for me, I just didn't have – I just told myself, you know, hey, no, no good comes from freaking out. The last memories your guys are going to have of you is not you crying for your life or begging for, you know, anything like that. You're just going to be okay. So uh, that's, I, I don't know if that's the willpower that I had. And then being a staff sergeant and promoted fast in the military – I was always looked at as a leader. So out of 40 guys, I was like uh, the weapon squad leader, which is the third highest ranking enlisted guy. I was only 20, you know, four years old, but, uh, but I had, you know, I had some, some real authority. So, so there was that. And then on top of that, we had, um, you know, just, I had the ability to keep my mind right because I, I just, I just told myself, no matter what happens, you're not going to change the outcome. So just do your best. We are talking with um, retired U.S. Army Staff Sergeant Travis Mills of the 82nd Airborne, who um, 
was critically injured uh, in 2012 in Afghanistan. As uh, If you just turned it on, he lost both of his legs, uh, one of his arms. The other one eventually was amputated. And um, Travis, I, I want to talk about the Travis Mills Foundation, and I want to talk about your, yeah. you know, what you do now as a, you know, as a motivational speaker and your book and all that stuff. But I'm, I hope you'll forgive me for for dwelling on the the circumstances that led you to this place because it's just so fascinating. Um, so I want to ask you two more questions about it. The first one is, once you realized that the mission was over, um, as you said, you know, you, you, you were, it was all about the mission. You know, you were, you were going to be, you were going to be what you needed to be for the purposes of completing the mission. But once you're in a hospital bed, you're a week, you're two weeks, you're a month past the surgery or multiple surgeries or whatever it is. And you're in a situation now figuring out what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Was there ever a point where you didn't have that spirit you're describing right now, concern for other people, being motivated by war movies and, and all kinds of other things? There had to have been a point where depression, sadness, um, you know, self, uh, self-pity had to have set in when you looked down and you realized the, you know, the, the physical specimen that you were as a staff sergeant, an airborne, 82nd Airborne, uh, everything that you were is going to have to change now because of the current condition you find yourself in. How did you get past all of that? Yeah, um, so it's, it's pretty it's pretty crazy, right? So I woke up in the hospital bed on my 25th birthday four days later and found out that I was a quadruple amputee, right? Like I didn't know the aftermath of the surgeries and whatnot. And then for three hours, I ignored everybody. And I had questions in my head, right? The doctors and nurses asked questions. My brother-in-law was there. Um, but I just kept, you know, in my head, like, am I a bad person? Does God hate me? What did wrong life deserve this? Um, and the big question was how can I be a husband and a father? And, you know, I'm great friends with Gary Sneath. Um just through the work that he does, and, and he's been a mentor to me and, and great guy, Lieutenant Dan, you know, from Forrest Gump, I had the question of why didn't I just die? Like, how is this going to be better? And um, eventually, my, you know, I, my, I got back home seven days after my injury. I, I saw my daughter for the first time, and then it just clicked. Uh, you know, there's going to be hard days, and there's going to be easy days, and there's going to probably be, in the beginning, more hard days than easy, but my daughter, six-month-old little girl, is still my daughter. I told my wife to take the house, the cars, any money we had, you know, and go. And, like, this isn't what I would choose for you. And she's like, no, we'll get through this together. So my wife is a lot of the story. And then my daughter, Chloe, who learned to walk with me at the same time I learned how to walk. And is my be- she's still my best friend to this day. And I tell people, like, my foundation, the Travis Mills Foundation, if you want to figure out why I did it, just look at my daughter. Look at my, my daughter, um you know, still being there, and I'm her dad. And, um, and, you know, fast forward, I have a son. He's six years old, and his name is Dax, um, because the mags were Daniel and Alexander, so his name is D-A-X. After those two, that made it possible for me to come back and have another child. And I jumped around in the story a lot, and I apologize, but no, I think no. I found my true strength from my daughter and my wife and my family support. And then, you know, it, it's a real it's a real uh, empowering, yet yet somber thing to lay in the hospital bed and realize that, I'm not going to die, and this is my life. So you make one of two choices, get better or don't. But that's all you have. I mean, people wonder, like, oh, my gosh, how'd you do it? And I see how outside looking in, it's like it's really astonishing and so amazing. But for me, I had to make that decision to get better or to, to dwell on it. And there's nothing I can do by dwelling on it. So I just got better. Uh, apologize for nothing. I mean, I'm, you, I'm you, sorry you to be should so bounce. Around. No, no, no. You should bounce around. You have a billion different things to say and a billion different elements of the story to talk about. No, you're doing phenomenally well, and I appreciate it very much. And then the last thing I'm going to ask you about what happened then, and then we'll get into what you're doing now, is is what kind of a you know who was Travis Mills before this? 
you don't sound like you're a guy who found his strength, you know, in your wife and daughter after something tragic that happened to you and it was some sort of a light that came on. You sound like you went into this whole thing. You're a very, very unique guy. You seem like you always have had a positive attitude. I don't know you. I didn't know you then. Who were you before you went into the service and before this all went down? Uh, I was the captain of the football and baseball and basketball teams from Pee Wee on up to varsity. Um, you know, always stepped up to help out. Always smiling, joking, having a good time. Not the best student, I'll be honest. More of a BC kind of average student. Uh, but I get myself. I can talk myself out of trouble just as fast as I get into it. So that's a good thing. Um, <laughs> you know, and then I was always smiling. Like we would get in a firefight overseas on my third deployment. We'd get in a firefight, and I would run to the front, and I would start singing the eighty second songs and things that usually guys get annoyed by. But I don't rank them, so they couldn't. But it became like this really fun thing that we did, and. Um, I was just always positive. Like people, I had guys in my first, when our first firefight happened in my third deployment, I'd been in firefights before, but my first one happened. Um, and I kind of, I led from the front, commanded the, the area, went and got a guy out of the dry riverbed with rockets and mortars and RPGs coming at us and small arms fire and machine guns. Um, and I went and saved him. Not, I mean, yeah, I, I did. I mean, I, I'm not trying to be boastful here, but went down and got him by myself. And I had two guys that were in a different unit and they were like, you know, when we, we came here and, we saw how you acted, always smiling and joking and singing and having a good time. We didn't know how you could ever become a staff sergeant and be the weapon squad leader, like the senior guy for the squad leaders. And after today, like, we'll follow you anywhere, no questions asked. And, I mean, that meant a lot to me because you turn it on, you turn it off. I don't have to be this, you know, TV screen, you know, mean sergeant yelling at people. I never did. If I yelled at you, like, you did something so so terrible, I had to actually yell. And I've always just maintained that in my life. Like, I... I don't yell at my, my wife and I. We've never gotten an argument where I've yelled at her and, and said any bad names. I don't think it solves anything. And um, just who I am, I guess. So I, I don't know where I find the drive. My parents are very determined, great people. And I'm fortunate to have them in my life every day. And uh, I have a sister and a brother. I'm the middle child. So, you know, it's always I'm the most important. And, and it's always all about me. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I guess I don't know. I, I'm just this is who I am. Well, I'll tell you what, it's exactly what I expected to hear. You know, being a captain of all of your teams and everything else that you, you were before, you, it, it's some people are born to be leaders. Some people are born to be uh, those who inspire others. And now you're doing that in the aftermath of everything that went down. First, you wrote a book, uh, which, is, which is amazing. It's called Tough As They Come. It's a New York Times bestseller. You're doing uh, speaking tours where you're going out and addressing groups. And tell us what the Travis Mills Foundation is all about. Absolutely. So the Travis Mills Foundation was just an idea my wife and I had to do care packages and send them overseas to the guys that were deployed from my unit and their new units that they were in. And we donated $5,000 from ourselves, and we decided to, um, just from ourselves, do it. And we did, and it went really well. But then I went on these really awesome trips at Walter Reed and learned how to go snowboarding and downhill mountain biking and uh, horseback riding, kayaking, just all these action sports that I could still do. Because I didn't think I had much left. I had anything to offer. And I found out I could. On these trips, my wife got to go with me because I need a non-medical assistant. So I said, we should build something where we bring families out because family's the only thing that got me through. So we built, um, well, we bought a property and we put a lot of uh, effort into it. A bank believed in us enough to give us a loan. And now we have this gorgeous estate where we bring out families that have been through physical injury due to service. Um, and we bring them out and show them that no matter what, life goes on. And to be off the sidelines and get after it. And uh, we also, on top of that, partner with a post-traumatic stress program called Warrior Path, which is for first responders and combat veterans, one of the best um, post-traumatic stress programs in the nation that I'm, I'm proud to say I got to partner with, and we save lives every every time um, we have people come to our you know programs. 
And as the founder and president, I don't take a dollar of it because um, it's not about me getting a salary. It's about giving back. So I'm just very honored to uh, do the work that we do. But we've somehow become one of the fastest growing and the biggest veteran service organizations around. And we change thousands of people's lives a year. And, um, you know, I'm sitting here right now at my foundation getting ready to head into a board meeting. Um, and our board members are some of the most powerful people around the nation that just want to help us out and, and do what they can to, to be on our team. Travis, I guarantee you in this audience there are a lot of people right now saying, I want to help, I want to donate. How can people donate to the Travis Mills Foundation and continue your work? Well, I'll tell you what, I know Seth's with you right now, um, and there's a guy, if you guys go to travismillsfoundation.org, that's a great way to start it, but travismillsfoundation.org slash Dave, because you guys have Dave Mortosh of Mortosh Financial. Yes, we And do. this man this man does a $500,000 match out of the kindness of his heart, just just fortunately become friends with Dave, and I know he doesn't like me bragging about who he is and what he does, but he holds an event in Cleveland. We do a radiothon right there, and we do a lot of cool things. But um, if you guys want to help with that, donation-wise, you can just go ahead and go on TravisMillsFoundation.org slash Dave, and you donate right there, and him and his wife match it automatically up to $500,000. Um, and it helps us bring families out, you know, and, and uh, we also have volunteer opportunities. But I'm just, you know, I'm just so honored to do the work that I do, and, at the end of the day, I can't change what happened to me, so I make the best of it just because I have the opportunity to make the best of it. Yeah, Travis, uh, I'm so glad you brought it up. I have that page in front of There's a flyer, in fact, right now for the uh, Dave Mortosh uh, $500,000 match. TravisMillsFoundation.org slash Dave. And Dave Mortosh and his family will indeed up to a half a million dollars match any donation that is made to the Travis Mills Foundation. And I think that's a phenomenal partnership you have. It's a wonderful gesture on his part. And obviously he's, like so many others, inspired by you in your story and what you've done since... Um, that horrific uh, uh, incident that, that you know that, that robbed you of so much, and you have not let it, let it slow you down at all. The last question I have for you, if I could, Travis, and you don't have to answer it, okay? Uh, because I don't know if you are political or how you feel. But just last month, of course, we marked two years since the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and um, quite frankly, it was chaotic. If I'm being generous, it was a disaster. If I'm being more honest, it t- took the lives of 13 of uh, you know your brothers and sisters in arms who were uh, who were killed uh, in the way that was handled. How do you feel about the fact that we are out of Afghanistan now? How it was done, and then you know the fact that um, quite frankly, it's 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 like it was before we went in. The Taliban is in charge. Uh, people that that worked with you guys uh, were abandoned there. Are are hiding and fleeing for their lives. Do you have any thoughts on Afghanistan as we know it now? Yeah, I mean, I did actually a lot of op eds on this, and and um, you know, I have my political views, and I try to teeter on the line of neutral so that people on both sides of the aisle will believe in what we're doing here and know that that's what we're most most important. But yeah, but. I will eventually run for the U.S. Senate. You know what I mean? And um, when I do that, it'll be it'll be awesome. But what my views were then and they are now is it was time to go. It was time to leave Afghanistan. I got blown up, and uh, I'm not even joking. I got blown up because they were putting bombs in the ground, and when they put the bombs in the ground, we weren't allowed to go out and get them at nighttime because of rules of engagement. We weren't allowed to go do our jobs. And it was just becoming such a circus that it was time to go. Now, giving up air bases to fly people out like Bagram and Kandahar was absolutely ridiculous and try to fly out of just one small airfield instead of actually using the big places that we had um, to get people out um, just blew my mind. And I don't think it was properly executed by any means. But at the end of the day, when I was watching them at nighttime put bombs in the ground and not able to shoot or go out on patrol and had to walk through minefields the next day, 
to which which made me and a lot of other guys get blown up, I definitely believe it was time to go. And the thing is, we live in a nation that's not going to drop atomic bombs and kill people like we did in World War II. We're just we weren't we're not you know ever since Vietnam it's you know the conflicts and all that we're not willing to get the job done because of the the casualties that would happen. So so Afghanistan, look, I don't regret what I did over there. I don't feel bad um, about my service. I, I don't blame anybody or anything, but I do believe it was time to get out of Afghanistan because of what the rules of engagement turned into. And furthermore, I sat in President Trump's office, in the Oval Office, and told him this. And within two weeks, he changed the rules of engagement back to what they used to be, um, you know, because he found out what I, you know, what was happening to all of our service members. And so I, I don't know. I, I guess that's, that's the best way I can put it. I think it was time to go, but I think we, the execution of how we withdrawed was, was, a, was a bit hasty and, and not well planned out. I think that's fair, and I understand your willingness to and your desire to be non-political or to be, like you said, down the middle in this whole thing because of the importance of what you're talking about. Uh, you said talk, you talked about running for Senate. In Maine? Are you you're out of Maine, correct? Yeah, out of Maine, but my wife says i got to wait. Well, she actually said I can't do it, but I mean what she really said was when my, when my kids get out of school, then I can do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so someday, someday down mean. the line. Yeah. Oh, and I don't, I, I'm just saying, like, I, I, I try to be on both sides. No, I'm, I'm definitely, uh, <laughs> definitely on the right side of politics for the most part. You know what I mean? So Understood. I just, I don't need to offend anybody, but I think that with, um, just like all the stuff going on in Ukraine, you know, my, my brother-in-law, he's a civil affairs guy and he goes, we're getting a proxy war with Russia that we don't have to lose any soldiers and, um, things like that. So I'm not sure I feel about any of it, but I do know that my service, that, uh, the military was like one of the greatest, uh, probably besides for being a dad and, uh, you know, was the greatest thing to ever happen. Uh, I love my job and I, I don't feel embarrassed or upset about any of the service I did, but as far as the Taliban back in charge, um, it was kind of what happened in Vietnam, right? Like they didn't want to go into Cambodia where they had all the headquarters for the Viet Cong and they decided to pull out and everybody was left scratching their head saying, what, what do we even do? What was that even for? Yeah, that's exactly what I was yeah. wondering. I wondered how you felt about that. You sacrificed so much, almost the ultimate sacrifice, if it weren't for the heroism of the uh, surgical team, the medics, and then, of course, yourself. You left it all out there. So many others did lose their lives there, and the question now becomes was, is, uh, you know, was it worth it? Did we, did we do enough to finish yeah. the job? Uh, Travis Mills, uh, the foundation, again, travismillsfoundation.org slash Dave to make a donation that will be matched up to a, a half a million dollars by Dave Mortash. Travis, thank you for coming on. I'm so glad you know Seth. I'm so glad we were able to bring you on and tell your story in much more depth here. Really, truly appreciate it. God bless you, sir, and keep up your great work. Thank you so much. Bye-bye, guys. Have a great day. You got it. There's Travis Mills. I told you it would be an inspirational story if you didn't know his story. I didn't know much about it at all until uh, this. And thank you to Seth for putting us in touch with uh, with uh, Travis. And by all means, if, if you're going to donate $5 to something or $50 to something, um, why not the Travis Mills Foundation and have that doubled by Dave Mortash? Uh, it does tremendous work for veterans and for uh, those who have... Uh, suffered uh, in many ways like Dave has, or like Travis has, I should say, like Travis has. We'll take a time out here. We'll come back. Hour number two uh, is coming up on Always Right Radio, AM 1420. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Darkness. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420. The answer.
is your host, Bob France. All right, hour number two underway now, eight minutes past 10 o'clock. <clears throat> Thanks for being with us on a free-for-all Friday. We will open up the phone lines. We uh, have got another guest coming up at 1035 uh, when we talk to Chris Rico, who I told you about again. Uh, we've been talking to him every year for quite some time now about the um, Tunnel to Towers run that is coming up in Medina on Sunday, of course, with Monday being the anniversary of 9-11. So we'll talk to him. But uh, between now and then, we have a lot of opportunities for you at 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. I mentioned at the top of the show, and I do want to get this in, that I had two stories um, of schadenfreude. I told you the first one when the uh, uh, the uh, far-left Democrat leader in Minneapolis who had called for, repeatedly for the last three years, the defunding and the dismantling of the uh, police department, she said police departments were dangerous for kids. They shouldn't be around schools. Cops shouldn't be around minorities. They're dangerous for minorities. And suddenly she found herself the victim of a violent carjacking by what she described as four very young men all carrying guns. Suddenly she needed police. And unlike me, I would have, who would have just said, sorry, bad, I couldn't hear you, you're breaking up and just let her suffer. She didn't like cops, and fine, cops don't come to help her. Unlike me, cops are are good people. I'm not. Uh, I have that kind of uh, streak in me, and uh, they showed up, and uh, she thanked them for helping to rescue her. She does have a broken leg and a bunch of other pretty serious injuries, actually. But I got a little schadenfreude when I see somebody who is a cop hater, a a, a leader and an anti-cop activist in need of cops. So, uh, like I said, the cops are better men than I am. That's why they would go and respond, and I would have been just like, too bad you're on your own. Probably. The second one is Eric Adams. You probably have heard this by now. Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, back when he took over, uh, right before he took over, as he took over, this is in September of 2022, Eric Adams was proudly talking about the sanctuary city status that uh, he would maintain as mayor of New York. You, you pledged uh, during your campaign to uh, keep New York City a sanctuary a city. Are, do you have any concern that that, that policy uh, is, 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 for, is attracting more people to the border, more people to cross the border to make that dangerous no. trip? Uh, no, not at all. Uh, the city has always been a sanctuary city, and we've always managed those who wanted to come to uh, New York City to pursue the American dream. Tell you so you heard the response there. No, not at all. We have always managed to help those who come to New York City to pursue the American dream. We will remain a sanctuary city, and uh, and we'll be able to handle it. That's what he said in September of 2022. Now, one year later... After the sanctuary status of New York City was called into action, and they actually had to start providing sanctuary to the people they said they would provide sanctuary to, drawing more of them to the border, as the interviewer from ABC said, now Eric Adams is singing a different tune. And as he sings this tune, I'm sorry if I sit here and engage in a little bit of schadenfreude. This is exactly what he asked for, and now listen to him. No support, and let me tell you something, New Yorkers. Never in my life have I had a problem that I did not see an ending to. I don't see an ending to this. 
I don't see an ending to this. This issue will destroy New York City. Destroy New York City. We're getting 10,000 migrants a month. One time we were just getting Venezuela. Now we're getting Ecuador. Now we're getting Russian speaking coming through Mexico. Now we're getting uh, Western Africa. Now we're getting people from all over the globe have made their minds up that they're going to come through the southern part of the border and come into New York City. And everyone is saying it's New York City's problem. Every community in this city is going to be impacted. We got a $12 billion deficit that we're going to have to cut. Every service in this city is going to be impacted. All of us. And so I say to you, as I turn it over to you, this is some, some of the most educated, some of the most knowledgeable, probably more of my commissioners and deputy commissioners and chiefs live in this community. So as you ask me a question about migrants, tell me what role you played. How many of you organized to stop what they're doing to us? How many of you were part of the movement to say, we're seeing what this mayor is trying to do and they're destroying New York City? It's gonna to come to your neighborhoods. All of us are going to be impacted by this. I said it last year when we had 15,000. I'm telling you now, with 110,000, the city we knew, we're about to lose. And we're all in this together, all of us. Staten Island said, send them out to Manhattan. Manhattan is saying, send them out to Queens. Queens is saying, send them out to Brooklyn. No. Is that the game we can play? Open the floor up. This is the game that you play when you deliberately roll out a red carpet for illegal aliens and tell them, come to our city. We will provide you sanctuary. We won't allow you to be deported. We won't turn you over to the feds. We'll clothe you. We'll house you. We'll feed you. We'll educate you. We'll provide your health care. Come on in. We're sanctuary cities. You invited this, and now you're saying it will destroy your city. Well, guess what? You're right. It will destroy your city. Yes, unchecked, rampant, illegal immigration into the United States is destructive. It does destroy things. It does destroy cities. You're right. So why are you pinning all of the blame for it on the governor of Texas? Because the governor of Texas didn't roll out the red carpet. The governor of Texas tried to put up barriers to stop it. But the governor of Texas was overruled by the president of the United States. The leader of your party, Mr. Mayor, the leader of your party, is the one that continues to the the open-door red carpet policies that lead to all of those people, and you're right to say they're not all from Mexico. They're from all over the world, including Russia. You mentioned Africa. You didn't mention China. You didn't mention, you know, half of the country. I mean, I think... I think DHS has, has, has tracked 
it, the number of illegal immigrants who have come into this country just in the last three years is over 5 million, and they represent some 165 of the roughly 200 countries identified in the world. They're coming from everywhere. All through the same place, though. And there's only one man who is responsible for that. Eric Adams made that speech about how New York City is going to be destroyed of, because of this one issue. And he blames Greg Abbott for that because he said they're getting 10,000 migrants a month. By the way, I don't believe that. I don't believe it. I think it's completely uh, uh, an overstatement. But whatever the number is, he's blaming Greg, Greg Abbott for busing busloads of illegals up to New York City. Instead of blaming Joe Biden for those illegals being in the state of Texas in the first place. And, and it just strikes me as I, as I listen to that, that complaint that the city of New York is going to be destroyed. The city of New York is widely regarded as the, you know, the, the, the most iconic city in America. New York City is our highest populated city. Some seven and a half million people live in, in New York City. And, the whole country now is watching and listening to Eric Adams saying this is going to destroy our city. To which I say, Governor Greg Abbott of the state of Texas should be given an award. Because those same 110,000 people that he talked about that are in New York City over the last year, coming up illegally, that 110,000 multiplied by 50 is what is coming across the border in Texas. Nobody cared when it was all in Texas. Nobody cared about the border states, the people who live down there, the people who, the ranchers. No one cared as long as illegal immigration only affects the people who live along that southern border with Mexico. No one gave a rat's red butt. They only started paying attention when Greg Abbott started sending some of them to the biggest city in America, New York. The second biggest city in America, Los Angeles. The third biggest city in America, Chicago. The fourth biggest city in America, Philadelphia. This is, this is the reality. People didn't start paying attention until the problem hit in the big cities, not just down in the Texas communities. Now suddenly people are paying attention. Now the media is focusing on the issue. Now Mayor Eric Adams is crying out loud. Yes, it worked. Greg Abbott ought to get a medal. No one else is doing that. Well, Governor DeSantis did the same, but of course, uh, you know, it was a little bit different coming from Florida. Not nearly in the numbers that are, of course, crossing the, the Rio Grande in Texas. But, but very few people are doing what they're doing. They have, sh- they have shown a spotlight now on the problem that is a world or is a nationwide problem, not just a Texas problem any longer. And by the way, just the, the, he called, he called Governor Abbott a madman. Adams is so angry with Governor Abbott in Texas for, for sending these illegal aliens uh, at their own free will, by the way, up to New York, and he said he's a madman for busing them in there. 
Go go item for item on what Eric Adams ran for as a candidate, and look at what he's accomplished in 20 months. We turned the city around in 20 months, and then what happened, he said, it started with a madman down in Texas who decided he wanted to bust people up to New York City. Why is that the behavior of a madman? What is What is insane about saying we have millions of people crossing the border into our state because of the policies of the president, the leader of your party, why should we absorb all of that pain? Why should we absorb all of those costs? Why should our schools be overrun with people who speak 160 different languages from 160 different countries? Um, why should our uh, health care resources be overrun by all of these people? Why should it all be stuck in Texas? And then you sit up here smiling from your ivory tower in New York City and just say, well, it's not our problem. That's a Texas problem. Well, now we've made it a you problem. What are you going to do? You said you were sanctuary. Texas didn't say they were sanctuary. You said you would provide sanctuary to illegal aliens. Then, And now that you have to do it, you're saying, how come Texas isn't keeping them? Well, Texas shouldn't have to keep them simply by virtue of the geography that has them down there along the southern border. So am I watching the pain that is being suffered by Eric Adams and his left-wing, woke-ass, blue city of New York because of the very, very wise decision to bring this problem to the mainstream of the United States by Greg Abbott sending these people northward? Am I watching all of this and smiling ear to ear? You're doggone right I am. I'm taking pleasure in his misery. I'm shodden. I am just full of schadenfreude. Full of a lot of other things, too. But I'm full of it. Because this is exactly how it should work. The idea that all of the mass illegal immigration that Joe Biden is responsible for should be, should rest, the responsibility for this should rest on just the people of Texas and not on the blue city mayors and leaders that call themselves sanctuary cities and who supported and voted for Joe Biden and for this open borders policy. The idea that liberals in the liberal cities of New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, and so forth, that they shouldn't endure some of this pain is just ludicrous. So, yeah. Cry a little bit more. Cry a little bit harder, Eric Adams, about how New York is going to be destroyed. If it is, maybe then you'll understand one one millionth of what they are dealing with down in Texas, and maybe then you will go to the White House. You and your other party leaders will go to the White House and demand, build the damn wall. Because they're not just stopping in Texas anymore. Now they're coming here, too. It was easy for us to say, oh, no, let them come across. You know, we're a welcoming country when they were only in Texas. But now that they're here... I'm not feeling quite so welcoming. Get rid of them. 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. TJ's in Cleveland. Hey, TJ, fired up. Yeah, hi, Bob. You know, Bob, I was going to call to talk about the police, but that interview with Travis really really hit home with me. Uh, first, got to say, I salute him as a great soldier and a great man. Uh, and one thing he said that really struck home with me when he was talking about watching the movie Saving Private Ryan when that medic got injured and was laying there screaming. Mm-hmm. Bob, I'm going to tell you, one of the worst things in a firefight, to me, was listening to your comrades after they'd been wounded, laying there screaming and, you know, uh, in pain. I mean, it just tears you apart from the inside. But that being said, I watched the news thing the other night. A town in California is so overrun with crime 
They can't get police, so what they're doing now is offering a $75,000 signing bonus to get police. Now, that's another liberal policy that has totally uh, uh, went down the drain with this defund the police. And what's going to happen in the long run, they went to defund the police. They're going to end up spending more money in these cities to restore the police because nobody's going to take that job without big, big, big incentives. And it's going to cost a lot of money to restaff these police departments, all because of their failed liberal policies. Yeah, you're exactly right. You're 100% right, uh, TJ. Completely defeated their own agenda. And thank you for the call, my friend. And thanks for sharing the stories, too, because I know what Travis did uh, and talked about probably struck home with those who were in combat the way you were. So I understand that. Thank you, my friend. Don is in Parma next. Hey, Don, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hello, hello Don. Can you hear me on line two? All right. Try try Kathy and Avon Lake on line three. Kathy, are you there? Hi, Bob. I I just love listening to you. You get so real, and it's just it's really encouraging. Um, Thank you. I'll try to make this quick. I met you. I was a committee woman on Cuyahoga County, uh, voted in, all that. There is, and I called your office or your phone line before the last um, the, uh, the issue one. There is still an embedded DNC iPad in the lower just the lower rent poll the lower income polls in Cleveland, Ohio, Cincinnati and Columbus that we have to get rid of. It it was proven by that that issue one going down. And it is it is the rhinos know about it. I'm telling you, Bob, this is really serious for what's coming up. Then I hear about the marijuana being legal in Ohio. It's they know they can sh- that, no, but this little computer pushes enough provincial ballots. It's all DNC, all Democrat voters, and it's illegal. And they're going to use it again. And then, and they're going to use it. And the Republicans are going to use it in Republican uh, committees in, during the primaries against anyone that Trump likes. Well, I'll tell you what, Kathy. Yeah, I'll tell you what, and thank you so much for the call. It it continues to be a a problem for which I I think there is no solution, at least at this moment in time. Because yes, there is going to be there are going to be all kinds of different ways to cheat at the polls, all kinds of different things that we may or may not be able to trust. We've been fortunate that in Ohio so far, at least in the last two election cycles, that we had uh, massive cheating in other places. We didn't have it here. But uh, I agree with your concern, and I thank you for the call. It's 1027. We'll come back after this. Enlightening the sleeping masses and stoking the fire of the American dream. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. 1035. Good uh, morning to you once again. Thanks for being with us. Thanks to my guest. Uh, last hour, we spoke with uh, Travis Mills, Staff Sergeant Travis Mills. What an incredible and extraordinary story of uh, sacrifice and survival and an inspiration to so many. What, what an amazing story. Uh, so we brought you that conversation, and now we're going to talk more about inspiration and about helping and about uh, uh, commemorating and remembering those who sacrificed so very much. Uh, on Monday, it is uh, the 22nd anniversary of the horrific uh, 9-11 attacks uh, in September of 2001, and uh, 
uh, every year for the last several years. I can't I can't tell you I know exactly how many, but uh, for the last several years in a row. Uh, we have spent some time talking to good folks from Tunnel to Towers. Tunnel to Towers, of course, is an organization that is, was started by Frank Siller, the brother of uh, Stephen Siller, who is uh, one of the many heroes, and perhaps one of the more uh, noted heroes from 9-11, as he uh, left the, um, or actually didn't leave, but he was driving toward a, a golf outing with his brothers, got on the other side of the Battery Tunnel in New York City when he found out what had happened behind him and uh, immediately stopped his car. Uh, gathered his gear from the trunk and ran the equivalent of uh, around three and a half miles uh, about what a 5K race would be with his gear and then got there and then started climbing the stairways in the towers to go and try to save people's lives before, of course, those towers collapsed upon him, killing uh, him and so many others. It's just a remarkable story. The Tunnel to Towers Foundation is one of the most uh, important foundations, I think, working. And joining me now to talk about it is Chris Rico, our good friend who has uh, uh, been responsible for, well, not responsible, but on the team and part of those responsible for Tunnel to Towers Medina and one of many satellite races or satellite 5K runs that is done uh, each year at around the time of the 9-11 anniversary. Chris, good to have you back here, here on the program. How are you? Great, Bob, and I, I can help you with that as far as how many times we've been together, and you have been instrumental in helping us every year, Bob. Uh, for the last ten years, you have actually had us on the air, so I appreciate wow. that. We could not have we could not have done it without you, and it takes us back to the days of being on the other station. So, uh, you know, that's that's where we started well, doing this together. So, so thank you. Yeah, it's so thank you for that reflection. I didn't realize it had been that long. Because uh, I do know that, and I'm looking right now at the website, tunnel2towersmedina.org, and it's the number two for those wishing to click on it right now, tunnel2towersmedina.org. Uh, there's a little logo there saying this is the 10th anniversary of the actual Medina 5K run. So that's uh, that's quite an impressive thing, 10 years, a decade of, uh, of, of helping um, and commemorating and uh, obviously raising funds for uh, uh, you know for first responders. Yeah, there's a couple things that we do unique that, that at our run that has actually kind of gotten legs and, and, and happening at other runs as well. But, you know, the, the, the people that participate, and again, it's a run and it is also a walk. So if you, if you don't feel like you can run the whole thing or, or, or run at all, you can also walk in it to retrace Stephen's footsteps. But, uh, we give everyone who attends a lanyard that they wear around their neck and it has one of the 343 firefighters who died that day and also a bio- biography of them. So that you have this very special connection with somebody when you actually go through and, and walk the three miles. I love that. And love um, that. when when you get close to the halfway point, which is actually a uh, piece of World Trade Center steel in Medina, it is uh, actually the Medina uh, Remembrance for 9-11. It's, the, uh, it's right at the firehouse. When you get close to that, you start to see in the uh, Devil Strip, you start to see uh, the pictures of 343 firefighters. So oh we have gosh. that connection as well. So it is uh, it is as much a learning event and a uh, commemoration and a way to educate the young people and uh, just remember, like you always do on 9-11 with your show, 
we just try to always remember, never forget. Well, you know that. Yeah, I mean that was the the mantra. Um, uh, you know, from from everybody, pretty much coast to coast, uh, uh, on September twelfth is is literally we will never forget. You know, and of course when you're in the moment and in the immediate aftermath, you know that sounds like a very strong uh, thing to keep saying. We'll never forget, never forget, never forget. And then we get a month go by, then we get a year gone by, then we get five mm-hmm. years gone by, and here we are two decades later. And quite frankly, I think too many people do. They do forget the 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 horror of the day. And, and the heroism of the day. And I think equal parts need to be remembered and need to be, you know, uh, uh, commemorated uh, the horror so that we can truly understand what was done. But my gosh, the sacrifice of those first responders, the number of people, mm-hmm. uh, the number of lives that were saved because of those who got up there and, and, and did everything that they could to help people out, uh, rooting through twisted steel to find survivors. I mean, li- literally, uh, Chris, the heroism almost, almost almost outshines the, the, you know, the destruction of the day when you look at how many people gave everything Absolutely. they had to try to save lives. And I think that's what this, this run every year, you know, should, should focus on. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it's hard for, you know, uh, us who live our lives day to day to try to put ourselves in those people's footsteps. And I was thinking about this before I came on today is, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be able to run the run in New York City a number of times. And when you go through the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, of course, it's car free. There's no cars in it. Like Stephen had to navigate through, you know, a, just you know a a myriad of cars just sitting there because everything was shut down. Right. But it's it's car free, and the way that the tunnel sits, sits is it it has a a downslope for for a mile, and then it has an upslope for a mile because it kind of it kind of is in a V shape, if you will. And so you start to hit that upslope at a, at a mile point, and then you realize, okay, I'm in the second mile of the tunnel. I'm on my way up and out. And how many times did Stephen think to himself, well, what am I going to do when I get outside this thing? And, you know, am I going to just sit there and start, you know, trying to navigate people away from, from the disaster? Or am I going to just run straight to that building and go and start climbing it? Because there was a you know a thousand things he could have done after he got outside the tunnel, but he ran right to the danger. I uh, I'm so glad to hear you you know bring that up the way you are because that's that's one of the things that I try to do as part of my annual you know um, never forget and and always remember is to put myself in the shoes and try to see the incident through the eyes of so many, and that would include victims who may have looked out the window and seen a plane coming. It includes uh, those who were trapped inside after they hid in the burning, those who made decisions standing on a ledge, what do I do? Uh, and first responders, how do I help? What do I do here? How do, you know, mm-hmm. you're listening to command staff, of course, you know, whether it be police officers or firefighters, you're listening to your commanders, but they're probably trying to figure out this is un- unprecedented. We've never seen anything yeah. like this. So putting putting ourselves you know behind the eyes uh and seeing it through his eyes of of steven siller is a great thing to do what do you do when i get to the other end of this thing where do i go do right. i just, do i do do i check in with somebody do i do crowd control do i do i go to a truck i mean what, what, what what's my responsibility here and he didn't yeah. know he just knew that whatever the hell he did he, it had to be helpful and he was going to he was going to do whatever he could whatever that whatever that turned out to be yeah and he had 2 miles in the tunnel to you know talk himself out of doing anything so dangerous as what he did. Right. But for, for two miles in the tunnel, running through it and deciding when I get out of this thing, I'm still going to do what I set out to do when I was on the other side of it and, and still going towards the danger. 
so that's that's what the the foundation is all about is is honoring and also supporting the people who run towards the danger, including our police, our fire, and our fur, and our um, service members who have been injured or have died in the line of duty. And uh, so we have a number of different programs that uh, we have a, a, a 95% fundraising dollars go to all of these programs. It is the uh, on Charity Navigator. It's one of the best programs or best foundations uh, listed on Charity Navigator. So everything goes to help these people. But there's a smart home program. There's a fallen first responder home program, gold star family home program. So when, you know, people lose service members, the houses are paid, their mortgages are paid off. So this year, I wanted to let you know, because a lot of people ask about what's going on in Ohio with what we're doing with our money. Uh, we have paid off the 20th mortgage in July. We paid off the 20th mortgage for first responders, including, you know, people throughout Ohio, including Columbus, Cincinnati, and Cleveland. And out in, in areas surrounding uh, three smart homes for uh, catastrophically injured veterans, three smart homes in Ohio, and two are still under construction right now for uh, the smart homes. So we continue to do that work, and um, I am really um, uh, thankful that you had Travis Mills on earlier. Uh, Travis was one of the first home recipients from from uh, Tunnel to Towers. Yeah, gee, yeah, his um, his story is an amazing one, and I love the fact that uh, in Ohio now, like you just said, paid off the twentieth mortgage. That's that's phenomenal because we need people to know what their money is going to if they do make a donation uh, to Tunnel for Towers or Tunnel Two Towers rather this year. Um, but before we go to that or further into that, I just want to go back to the run for a second because. Every year I bring this up, and it's just it's it's worth pointing out, you know, that he didn't just put on a nice pair of jogging shoes and a pair of shorts and bring a little water bottle, put his earbuds in, and go for a nice three and a half mile run. He gathered all of his gear and he carried and wore his gear. And some firefighters um, and and first responders who run in these five K events like this one uh, coming up on Sunday, they do the same thing to truly, really, uh, um, you know, commemorate the, the sacrifice and the difficulty that that uh, Stephen had faced. Do you do you still know of of individuals who are going to wear their gear when they run this five uh, K? Oh, absolutely. It's tradition all over the country, and especially in New York City. But here in Medina, we have a number of them that do it, and then a number of uh, the firehouses come in from the surrounding areas as a team and come in and participate as a team. So as you're as you're participating in the run, and I think I always joke about this every year, I'm always following these guys because I'm so slow. I can see the back of their jackets that say the what firehouse they're with. So um, I'm I'm behind them, but they're they're finishing ahead of me. Um, <laughs> but and they're in their gear, so you know it's it's nice to be young again, I guess. But uh, they're in their gear, and you can watch them uh, cross the finish line. Uh, you know, a lot of people crossing the finish line, holding up uh, a picture of uh, who's on their lanyard that year. And I will say that people, once they participate in this, will come back year after year because it is so special, and uh, they really feel a connection to the community and to the, to the first responders that are participating and the military that are participating. And um, it's it's just a it's 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 not like any it's not like a 5K when you think of it as a, a competitive race. It's a it's a hundred percent different. It's it's like you said, Stephen had to run 5K to get where he was at. So so we do that in his honor and follow his footsteps. But 
it's this is not a, a competitive thing. This is this is much more a commemoration. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm glad you brought that up too. And I love the the you know the lanyard project, run run or walk with a hero. And and by the way, because I'm looking at some of these right now and the pictures of the lanyards with the heroes as they take that run with the individuals who are who are participating in this. But um, I I love the fact and and what really underscores that it's not competitive is that you can walk the whole thing. You know, uh, I know I couldn't run 5K. I could walk three and a half, 3.2 miles. Uh, in fact, I walk a, a pretty good amount more than that on a regular basis, but I just couldn't run on my knees. But people don't need to worry about times and they don't need to worry about being in the, you know, in the front of the pack or anything of that nature. If you want to go and just experience, you know, the camaraderie of like-minded people who want to remember all of the heroes and do something to help them, you can go out there and do it at your own pace, your own leisure. There's no judgment. It's just, in fact, it's an appreciation that you're here doing what you can. That's exactly right. And then we also have, you know, a very nice uh, welcome ceremony where we have you know, the, the Honor Guard and the National Anthem, the Pledge of Allegiance, all the things that you expect. And then at the uh, start and finish, we had the ladder trucks holding up the you know enormous American flag. So that that is the start and finish. So it is just an absolute wonderful time to uh, just bring your family and, and just appreciate it. Fantastic, no question. And by the way, what we need other people to know too is even if you can't come, if you can't walk, walk or run the event, and you still want to make, make a donation, same website, right? Tunnel Two Towers. Same Nevada. website. Yeah, and, and and for the run, it is the t two t run dot org. And uh, I, uh, I think I misspoke last year. So it is t2trun.org for the registration for the runs. And I, there you can see the runs that are taking place all over the country. But Medina is listed, and it's listed by date. So you just look for the date, which is September 10th, and again, Sunday at 8 o'clock. Terrific. I'm glad you got that on there. And then, like I said, I'm yeah. looking at the place to donate $11 a month to support uh, uh, Tunnel to Towers, the, the entire program and foundation. Uh, if you want to make a donation specifically because of this event, uh, you can do that there as well. So T2T.org and Tunnel 2 Towers. These are with the number two, Tunnel 2 Towers, Medina.org, uh, in order to register, yeah. run, and or to make a donation. Chris DeRico, uh, really appreciate what you and everybody on that team does every single year. You do, you're, you're doing what we said we would do right we're remembering and we're, we're going to make sure that we never forget the heroism and the sacrifice and the service on that day in response to uh you know the worst uh, the worst disaster in american history uh at least when it comes to a terrorist act so chris thank yeah. you for what you're doing thank you for coming on with us again i'm glad we did it for 10 years now and i look forward to doing it for uh for another 10 and beyond thank you so much for coming thanks on. thanks so much for your support bob we could not have done it without you and your listening audience which is so supportive so we really appreciate it thank you thank you god bless you chris that's Chris Rico, Tunnel to Towers, Medina. And by the way, what he just said, the last part is really, uh, you know, it's you. It's not me. It's you. Because you, you make the donations. You learn about this from this radio program. You register and go and run or walk that 5K and, uh, and take part in it. So uh, God bless you for those who are doing it. And if you have not yet done it but are thinking about it, please think about it very carefully and go to that website, t2t.org or tunnel2towersmedina.org so that you can uh, register and make your donation. It's 10.50. We'll take a time out now. We are free for all the rest of the way, so we got about another hour of the broadcast. So if you want to get in, get in. Let's talk on Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer.
Okay, 1054 now. We've cleared the phone lines out so we can get your phone calls up and on the radio. It is a free-for-all. You don't have to talk about any of the things we've done today. You don't have to talk about any of the topics that you've heard me mention. You can talk about whatever you want. That's the beauty of free-for-all. Everything is on the table. 216-901-0945. And triple eight two eight one eleven ten. Spent a lot of time talking about uh, the Schadenfreude and celebratory kind of feeling I get in the misery of Eric Adams and other big blue city mayors and big blue city voters who all said we're proud sanctuary cities. We love. Remember when Jim Kenny? Remember that smarmy sob uh, in uh, who was the mayor of Philadelphia? Remember that video where he came out of a council meeting and they did the hold their vote to be a sanctuary city, and he came out in front of a camera and did a little dance and dance said we're a sanctuary city, and that little sing songy voice of his it was just so cringeworthy, and they're just like yeah, look at us, and now it's like okay. There's five million illegal aliens that have crossed the border in the last two and a half years of the Biden administration alone. Start providing them sanctuary. Well, no, I don't want to sing my song if I actually have to give up money. I don't want to sing my We're a Sanctuary City song if I actually have to house these people, educate them, feed them, clothe them. I just like calling it. Calling, I like to virtue signal. That's, so I took great pleasure in watching Eric Adams suffer. And I mentioned Chicago. That's another one. Chicago leaders are facing the backlash of housing hundreds of migrants at the airport. One of the busiest airports in the entire world is O'Hare. A Chicago reporter named William Kelly uh, reporting on this says the city is experiencing a massive influx of migrants, again, many of them being sent up on buses from places like Texas, uh, but some are just getting up there on their own. More than 400 migrants now are reportedly being housed in one section of the airport, hidden from public view behind a black curtain. Don't look back here. We don't want you to see what's really going on back here. That number of 400 is up from 31 at the beginning of August. What do you think it's going to look like at the beginning of October and November? And if you don't like it, if you don't like the smell, because guess what? These people are not all in hotel rooms where they have access to, you know, hygienic services. If you don't like all of that stuff, good. You voted for it. Every blue state, city, and liberal and leftist that says we don't need a border wall, Trump's a racist, good. Suffer through it. You don't want it anymore? Go to your boss and make a change. The O'Hare Airport in Chicago is reportedly one of only 18 migrant shelters in Chicago, and that homeless Americans are no longer allowed to stay at the airport. But migrants are homeless Americans, not allowed. Clear that space so we can move in homeless illegal aliens. (laughs) Homeless illegal aliens. The city previously struggled with an influx of homeless people at the airport, but initiated a, initiated a crackdown earlier this year after Mayor Lori Lightfoot then faced criticism. Mayor Johnson is the new mayor. Some people are saying he's the migrants' mayor. Quite clearly, said the reporter uh, Kelly, um, American homeless booted, migrant homeless welcomed. That's hilarious. Millions and millions are being spent on this migrant crisis. Nobody knows where the money is going or what it's being spent on. I can tell you where some of it is. Not in Chicago, because they're just putting them in the airport. But we talked about this in some depth with Bernie uh, Marino two days ago. 
Bernie Marino was in New York City where his daughter lives and found out uh, what, what was going on at the Roosevelt Hotel. 1,025 rooms at a luxurious, historic Roosevelt Hotel. All rooms being uh, used by uh, illegal alien families. Cost $6,000 per family per month. Annualized $75 million. Who's paying it? The migrants? $6,000 a month? No. You are. I am. Taxpayer dollars are paying for all of that. And where's that money going? Into the pockets of the owners of the hotel. Who are they? Representatives and partners of the Pakistani government. You can't write it, my friends. You can't write it. You can cringe at it, but you can't write it. It's real. All right, 216-901-0945, This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and KeepingMedicareSimple.com. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. This is Always Right Radio with Bob Frant on AM 1420, The Answer. Third and final hour underway on this Friday. Thanks for being with us. Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. It's the eighth morning of the ninth month, year of our Lord, 2023. Um, we're free for all, so you can dial right now, and whatever you want to talk about, we'll do it. 216-901-0945. But I do want to just make a quick uh, uh, programming note. Uh, Monday will be my 9-11 commemorative special program. I do this every year, and I have literally for the last 22 years since that day. Matter of fact, I guess I've done it 23 years because I was live in San Francisco on the day, on 9-11-2001. I was doing Afternoon Drive, and um, it was a sports show. And it was, uh, quite frankly, it was the first show that I had ever hosted that wasn't sports-centric. Um, the world had changed. I freaked uh, that morning. I was feeding my, what, uh, three-month-old baby girl? Two months? Three months? Yeah. And uh, when I turned on the television and saw what was going on, and uh, it it changed me dramatically. And uh, I had to host a show that day talking about that. And uh, it was the first time I really, really, really knew that I needed to talk about things that mattered a lot more than balls and strikes. So anyway, every year since then, I've been doing a 9-11 commemorative special because I uh, am dedicated to the... Uh, to, to the to the mantra, we will never forget. It was on bumper stickers. It was on T-shirts. It was everywhere. 
And as the months went by and as the years went by and a decade went by and for crying out loud now another whole decade has gone by and I feel like a lot of people have forgotten. And for the young people like my daughter who was born just like I said just weeks earlier, um, you know, they never knew the the New York City skyline with the Twin Towers and they never knew an America that was, um, you know, pre this level of terroristic threat. So uh, it's, it's very important to me. So Monday, we will talk to Jim Jordan, as we always do. Uh, don't get me wrong, but we're going to focus a lot of our show, if not the entire thing, on, on 9-11. We're going to replay some things. We're going to listen to some very important things. And, uh, um, and we're going to listen to you, too. Talk about what it means to you 22 years after the fact. So that's coming up on Monday, just so you know. It won't be a regular Monday show. It will be insofar as the guests will have Jim Jordan, but uh, beyond that, it's going to be a lot of very important stuff for uh, what I what I consider to be important stuff for the sake of commemorating the loss and the sacrifices made on that day. Um, so real quick, before I go to the phones, I... Uh, I've been talking a lot this week about the coming COVID tyranny. If you missed the interview I did with um, Dr. Peter McCullough yesterday, um, that interview has been posted separately on the podcast page, whkradio.com. It is also has also been shared on my Rumble page, Always Right Radio, on my Twitter page, my Facebook page, my Truth Social page. You should listen to it. Uh, Dr. McCullough uh, is a cardiologist, and he spoke to the proven proven cardiac incidents that were the responsibility of the profit jabs or the poison darts, if you will. And uh, he was against them from the beginning. And then, uh, you know, clearly now over the last two and a half years, he said a lot to, uh, you know, to, to kind of buttress his view on that. Well, somebody who did not see that from the beginning is seeing it now. A famed cardiologist, Dr. Anish Koka, has expressed now his regret at regurgitating the party line, his words, on mRNA vaccines being safe and effective for young people. He has now vowed he would never behave the same way in a similar situation. Dr. Koka is a cardiology fellow at Jefferson Health, degrees from Penn State and Temple, and he said... He certainly saw an increase in heart conditions at his Philadelphia clinic after mRNA vaccines were rolled out en masse, like many of us in the cardiology community did. He said it's undeniable. He was especially regretful about his own personal role in propagandizing for the vaccines, the shots. Quote, me running around saying it's safe and effective. And giving it to 17-year-olds, given that most of the patients that were in the vaccine studies weren't 17 years old, I was not technically correct. I wasn't correct at all in saying it was safe and effective because there weren't enough people in that group to say that. He emphasized that he would not give it to low-risk people ever again. That was a mistake on my part, he said. He's particularly concerned by a new study, a Thai study, that, uh, as in Thailand, uh, that found an alarming number of cardiac injuries among minor teens given the Pfizer vaccine, particularly as the Moderna vaccine has been shown to have myocarditis rates three to four times that of Pfizer. This study tells you if you roll this vaccine out to millions and millions, and especially of 13 to 18-year-olds, you're going to have a significant number of clinical myo- myocarditis cases. This is a very, a very cardioactive vaccine. So 
my view on it, and I wrote this this morning when I shared this online, every single doctor, every single honest doctor in America that pushed these things should make a similar statement. I regret regurgitating the party line of safe and effective of a drug that I did not know to be safe nor effective because there was no trial, much less long-term trials, of people on the mRNA vaccines and putting these in people's arms en masse. There was no way we could have made this uh, determination that it was safe and safe and effective. I was repeating the propaganda, and I am guilty of it. And he is now apologetic for it. I want to hear every single one of the rest of these uh, these ghouls. And I'll tell you, I'm going to get to the phones. i got a lot of things still to say about that, and I'm going to continue on that train for a very long time, especially as now as we get into what they are going to call the new COVID tyranny season. Okay, um, Laura is in Wadsworth. Laura, thank you for your patience during my uh, meandering. You're on the air. Fire away. Good morning, Bob. I, I love your me- meandering. So many things that you say resonate with me so very much. Um, God bless you. Thank you. Um, uh, there's a couple things I want to talk about this morning, but first I want to make um, a couple of comments first. Um, God bless those first responders on September 11th, and we must never forget that day. I know that I never will. Um, for you and your listeners who may question the official narrative about that day, maybe like the, questioning the narrative of the pandemic. Um, I'd like to suggest a documentary that's on YouTube. It's called September 11th, The New Pearl Harbor, and also to look into Dr. Judy Wood. Um, I'm making a note of both of those things right now. September 11th, The New Pearl Harbor. I can follow up an email with you, Bob, and send you a link. Sure, yeah, that'll be fine if you can do that, too. I'll send it to Marcy and have her forward it to you. Okay, Okay. Um, great, thank you. And, and, and you said Judy Wood was the, was the author you said? Judy, Dr. Judy Wood. Dr. Judy Wood. Okay, yeah. got it. Thank you. Go ahead. Sure. Um, you're saying schadenfreude when talking about the woman who was carjacked in Minneapolis and yes. the uh, woke-ass mayor, Eric Adams. <laughs> That's a good way <laughs> my, to describe my him. Sister, right? I think you used that same term. I, you said something about woke. but I might have. Uh, my sister taught me the saying. It's called hoisted on their own petard. I've heard it many times. Have you ever heard that say? Oh, yeah, many (laughs) times, many times, yes. Great, okay. Um, Okay, to the two subjects I wanted to discuss, Um, I had the sincere honor of meeting Drs. Malone and Dr. McCullough. Um, I met them for the first first time at Children's Health Defense Conference that was at the Columbus State House last May, May of 2022. Um, There were about five women there testifying about the injuries from the COVID shots Mm -hmm. and listening to those testimonies was gut wrenching. There was not a dry eye in that audience of about 200 people. Um, All of our legislators were invited to attend that day, but yet not one of them showed their face at that meeting. Cowards. Quite disheartening. Cowards. Yep. Yep. All of them. Um, And I'd like to suggest to you and your listeners to subscribe to Malone and McCullough's Substack. Um, in particular, Malone had an article dated back on July 25th called Population Control and Official USG Policy. Um, it's a very enlightening as well as a uh, frightening read. So okay. I can send you a link to that too, Bob. Um, and you just mentioned Dr. Coca. Um, I'm not sure if your listeners or are you aware of Dr. Uh, Asim Malhotra. 
he's a cardiologist in the UK who did an about face, just like Dr. Koka did. Really? And a brave, a brave man, Asim Mahatra. Yep. Yeah, no, I was not familiar with him. I, and in fact, I only became mm-hmm. familiar with Dr. Coca in the last few days as I've been putting more time into this uh, research because they're coming around with the new mandates. Uh, so right. yeah, I will definitely have to look him up too. Or if you want to include that in your, uh, I'm going to have to pay you a producer fee. Uh, if you want to go well, and send me. <laughs> you know what? Call me anytime and pick my brain because this is what I live and breathe this information. I, you know, I read probably four hours a day, every day. So. Well, that's awesome, uh, and, and, and I appreciate around. the heads up on all this. Yeah, but if you if you can, yeah. do, you, do do you have my email address? Have we emailed? Uh, no. I, okay, you know, I'm going to put um, you on hold. I'm going to put you on hold. I don't want to give it out over the radio. Or else I'll just get besieged with thousands of emails that I cannot f- possibly respond to. So I'm going to put you on hold, Laura. Uh, I'm going to ask uh, you to know, talk to Marianne, and Marianne will give okay. you an email address to send that. Can I, to me. I can, can I mention my other topic before we? Oh yeah, yeah. Before I'm sorry, we go ahead. Yeah. Um, Two weeks ago, I had when I called in, I had mentioned that I was meeting with my local deputy sheriff regarding the dangers of COVID shots and yes. how we can get a grand jury to investigate in our state. Mm-hmm. So he told me that he would have to find a conservative sheriff and county prosecutor who are running unopposed in a county that's not adjacent to a Democrat county. Um, you know, that's not adjacent, like a you know how Cuyahoga is adjacent to Medina. Yeah. Um, Bottom line, it's political. So I just want to make a bet with you, Bob, for dinner for you and your wife that Attorney General Yost will never show up on your show to talk about this issue. I, 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 I first of all, I don't want to make a wager, but I, but I appreciate the point that you're trying to make. Um, I did read some of the some of the uh, responses of of Attorney General Yost about this. Uh, somebody brought it up in a, in a, and I don't know if it was on Twitter or wherever it was, but I did read some things, and I do understand. I I probably should take you up on it because I could use a good dinner, but uh, but uh, but I'm not going to. But I but I really think he will come on. Um, he and I have a, uh, a actually a short list of things that we are going to be talking about soon. I've already reached out to his team, or at least Seth and Marcy have reached out to his team to try to find a good time to have him on. But but I do believe he'll come on. But but the reason why I'm not pressing it is because I truly believe I already know his answer. And I think there's some merit to it, that, that, there, there, that there is nothing that an AG can do absent, um, you know, an actual crime that would warrant an investigation. Um, you okay, know, to just, to just launch, a, to launch an investigation of his own, just to saying, I'm going to look into, you know, so and so to find out if it's, you know, if it's legal or constitutional or not. It's not something I think a state attorney general will do or can do. So I think that's going to be his response. And I do respect it because, you know, there are some people accuse me. In fact, I just had a little bit of a back and forth with a Twitter user or a Facebook user the other day who say I softball Jim Jordan too much. And I said, do you know, I promise you, if you go ask Jim Jordan, if he feels softballed by me, he will, he will say no. The, the reality <laughs> is, the reality is there are limitations that any particular member of Congress, in including a committee chair like the Judiciary Committee, like Jim Jordan, there are limitations of things he can do and the things he can't do. There are also strategic reasons for doing things that you can do and things reasons for not doing things that people may want you to do because of you know, ramifications and, and next steps that a lot of people are not familiar with. That is one of the reasons why it would appear as though, you know, I'm letting him off the hook for certain things. He gives me answers that people don't like because they don't understand the, the, the machinations of, you know, of Congress. And I think that's going to be the case here. 
um, you know, with, with, with Dave Yost. There are things an attorney general can do and things they can't do and things that if they can't do but, the, but they try to please an electorate, a voting base, um, you know, it is only going to lead to, like I said, further ramifications and consequences that are a lot more dire than people understand. And I think that's what well, he's going know, to tell I, me, I and wonder, I'm going to respect that. I'm going to respect that answer from yeah. him the way I do from Jim Jordan in a lot of these sure. a lot of these conversations. Go ahead. I'll give you the last word. Yeah, sure, I understand. I, I wonder, though, if that might be different. You know, there's this organization I mentioned, probably, I think, on one of my other calls, that it's called the National American Renaissance uh, Movement. And they have a document that's 100, it's 82 pages long that they are going to present to every state governor, every AG, every county sheriff, and every county prosecutor in the entire nation that has 150 exhibits of the crime committed when it comes to COVID and the shots. And there's going to be those exhibits. It's a document that has links to all of those exhibits. There's over 150 of them. Okay. So evidence. So I, I wonder if that might not change. If he's presented with this document, which he will be, I'm hoping that Ohio is going to be one of the next states to be presented with this uh, information. Texas was just presented with it uh, last week. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm looking forward to that. And what I'm going to do is, like I said, don't hang up. I'll ask you to talk to okay. uh, Marianne, get uh, the information okay. to me uh, on all of those things that you could, and I will certainly give it my due attention, okay? I will, Bob. Right. Thank you so much for the thank, time Thank this you. Morning. You got it. Thank you, Laura. I appreciate the call. That's a lot of stuff we covered in one call. Uh, let's get a few more people on before we break, though. Diane and uh, Bay Village. Diane, welcome to the show. Go right ahead. Hi, Bob. Uh, regarding COVID, just follow the money. The pharmaceutical companies got very used to billion-dollar quarters, and now it's slacked off since, the, uh, since COVID has regressed, and it's being brought back to the forefront front because they got greedy and they got used to all those billion dollar quarters um it it's mind-boggling i was driving today and i saw a woman actually with her windows up in the car wearing a mask are you kidding me um and no one in my family and it's a small family but no one in my family got jabbed got a vaccination and none of us with the exception of my mother, who's in an assisted living facility, has gotten COVID. And the only reason she got it is because there's a man in there that got vaccinated, and he started spreading it. And unfortunately, she's in a memory care unit, and you cannot um, shelter those people in place. If they want to walk around, they walk around. So the whole unit got it. And while it wasn't that horrible at that point, nevertheless, she got it from somebody that was vaccinated. So the whole vaccination thing is a joke and if they mandate it i don't know what how you get away from getting it i I just won't do it i won't um and then regarding immigration eric adams the nutcase um governor abbott probably sent about ten thousand people to new york the other hundred thousand came from his president uh, Biden, and I use that word president very, very, very loosely. Uh, the same thing for all the other cities, Chicago, Maryland, all the places where they went, um, they came from the president. 
Who yeah, thinks by, that? By, they, they did it under the cover of night. They didn't want anybody to know they right. were doing it, but they were flying those flights full of, you know, plane loads of people, which of course you can fit a lot more than just a, you know, a 60 person bus, but they Absolutely. were flying them into these cities and not a word from any of them. It's only right. when Abbott started doing it publicly and in the light of day and announcing there's another bus load going out to New York or LA or whatever, then they started crying about it, which of course is what, uh, what should have happened. Uh, well, Greg Abbott shined a spotlight on it because now the big cities that that you know just ignored the pain and the suffering of the texas communities now they actually have you know the media is paying attention right it's so be in the careful what you wish for eric um and all the other <laughs> woke uh um mayors or whoever the heck's making all these arrangements the hypocrites um, i'm happy to see them flustered and everything and i wish to god that they would have kept those migrants in illegals in martha's vineyard so, you, you know uh, that would have been that would have been great because uh, that would be oh what five gosh. or six months now of them living there uh, among the rich and the elite. Can you imagine uh, how but here's, wonderful? Here's yeah. the best thing, and thank you for the call. I appreciate it very much, Dan. Here's the thing about what Eric Adams said that speech that I played. If that speech had been given by a Republican, that all of these illegal aliens are going to literally destroy our city, he would be called a racist. And 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 a uh, you know and a xenophobe, and a bigot. Oh my God! How dare you say that all of these black and brown people will destroy your city? You're clearly a racist. If a Republican says that, even a black Republican, he's going to be a racist. Democrat Eric Adams says it, and it's oh, we have to do something about the struggling people of New York. Unbelievable. Keeping you informed among the uninformed. Always right radio with Bob France. On the answer. Yeah, eleven thirty-four. We'll go right back to some phone calls here in a second, but uh, just I want to replay it so you can kind of try to pretend that this isn't Eric Adams, Democrat mayor of New York City. Try to pretend this is some Republican mayor in I don't know Texas or some some city in in a red state, um, who's who's talking about what the impact of illegal aliens coming to their city is doing to the city. Try to pretend this is a Republican. All right, does that make sense? Pretend it's a Republican in a red state and that the liberal media is hearing these words. And tell me how how you think it would go over. support. And let me tell you something, New Yorkers. Never in my life have I had a problem that I did not see an ending to. I don't see an ending to this. I don't see an ending to this. This issue will destroy New York City. Destroy New York City. We're getting 10,000 migrants a month. First of all, I don't believe that, like I said before. And certainly not from, from Texas. But wouldn't the first media response to this issue, this issue of thousands of migrants will destroy New York City... Wouldn't the first response of the liberal media be, if this was a Republican mayor, why do you hate black and brown people? Why are you so racist? People have a right to exist. No one is illegal. People have a right to pursue better options for themselves. We're a welcoming country. Isn't that the first thing they would say? They didn't say that to Eric Adams, though, did they? One time we were just in Venezuela. Now we get in Ecuador, 
Now we're getting Russian speaking coming through Mexico. Now we're getting uh, Western Africa. Now we're getting people from all over the globe have made their minds up that they're going to come through the southern part of the border and come into New York City. And everyone is saying it's New York City's problem. Every community in this city is going to be impacted. We got a $12 billion deficit that we're going to have to cut. Every service in this city is going to be impacted. All of us. And so I say to you, as I turn it over to you, this is some, some of the most educated, some of the most knowledgeable, probably more of my commissioners and deputy commissioners and chiefs live in this community. So as you ask me a question about migrants, tell me what role you played. How many of you organized to stop what they're doing to us? Can you imagine if this was a Republican mayor in a red state? Asking his commissioners and other leaders, his other city leaders, what have you done to try to stop all these migrants? Oh my gosh! You bigoted, racist, Republican piece of trash. What do you have against migrants? What do you have against people? Jesus was a migrant. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, they were migrants. What do you have something? Why do you have something against migrants? Why are you so racist? But they're not saying that about Eric Adams, are they? How many of you were part of the movement to say, we're seeing what this mayor is trying to do, and they're destroying New York City? It's going to come to your neighborhoods. All of us are going to be impacted by this. Oh, my gosh, why are you fear-mongering people? White people in their little white-privileged neighborhoods are going, to have, are going to have migrants coming to their neighborhoods. They're going to have an impact here. Why are you so racist? Why are you, do, you, do you know that's how this would go? What Eric Adams, the sad part about it is what Eric Adams is saying here as he cries about the impact of illegal immigration on his city is that he's right. Illegal immigration does destroy cities, towns, schools, health centers, communities. It destroys all of those things. When it's unchecked and rampant, illegal immigration to the tune of 5 million people coming across in the last two and a half years, yeah, they're going to be they're going to upset the uh the the balance of things like the budgets. And like I said, the social services available. It's going to affect it dramatically. He's right. The problem is he's griping to the wrong people about it. He's griping to Greg Abbott saying, stop sending them up from Texas. Go gripe at Kamala Harris's door. She was the czar. Go gripe at Joe Biden's door. If you can wake him up, he might actually listen. I don't know. He won't listen to us. Maybe he'll listen to a fellow Democrat. Eric Adams is right. Illegal immigration is destructive to American cities. But he's just the wrong person to be sending that message. Lisa in Medina on AM 1420, The Answer. Lisa, good morning. Oh, good morning. Oh, your show is so good, Bob. I'll tell you what. I I enjoy listening to you um, on these weekday mornings. Just a super show and and great call-ins and such important things. I want to thank you for... You know, going over the, the vaccination um, information, there's so many people that um, are uncomfortable and they won't talk about it, but hopefully some of them are listening because I have very firsthand accounts, uh, even in my own family, of 
people that have been injured by the vaccination. Mm-hmm. It's not like a friend of a friend. You know, it's it's really right there um, and personal, personal with me. So yeah. thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for, absolutely. Um, and I feel we, so awful for those who, who did suffer from those things because they trusted, like I described it, you know, they trusted the government. They rolled up their arms and said, I trust you when you say this is safe and effective. We knew it wasn't right. effective because it never did stop COVID. Uh, and now we know it wasn't safe either because of people like you who know people specifically up close and personally who have suffered from it. So it's just, uh, it's such a tragedy and it's something that we absolutely cannot allow to happen again. Right. 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 And and thank you for pushing that because it's, uh, you know, people don't want to touch it because it's so controversial, but um, it's so real that uh, we need to. We need to. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in fact, I do have Tom Havlin, um, the uh, uh, fellow that's a freelance data analyst that did the surveys. He's, he'll be coming along with Bernie Marino October 14th. So I hope... Uh, Good. You know, we have have a, a great crowd to to listen to to his story and what he has found again firsthand, right? Yes, yeah, that's <laughs> but, good. Um, that's tomorrow, good mm-hmm. yeah, tomorrow we have a McFan meeting, and um, this is also we're celebrating our um, 15 year anniversary this year. I mean, oh, this really? month. Yes, uh, we have been having these meetings since September of 2008. And so we will be celebrating um, in three different, two meetings and a picnic um, this month. So I just want to put that out there. And tomorrow we have um, two guest speakers. We have uh, Representative DJ Swearian, who will be speaking. Um, he has several different things that he wants to, um, you know, bring to light. And also our own Medina Commissioner uh, Harrison will be talking about NOACA. And again, this is, this is one of these things, there's some, is a tsunami of, you know what, is <laughs> coming down. And, and NOAC is, is a, a, something that we really need to get a grip on and understand because they're coming after our property and our rights. And, and, and we need to, to know how to push back against this. And we have a new, um, you know, fairly new commissioner who, uh, you know, was a very quick study. He didn't, I remember talking to him when he first, you know, became a commissioner about NOACA, and it was kind of a new thing to him, and now he really understands what's going on and and how bad this can affect all of us, um, and he kind of stands alone on 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 that board, and uh, anyway, he'll, he'll be speaking tomorrow as well. Okay. Well, that's uh, that sounds like a great uh, a great event, and uh, congratulations on 15 years. That's amazing <laughs> that you've been doing that. That's a lot of work. Oh, you've opened a lot of eyes. You've generated a lot of uh, support and activism among, among people who didn't know how to become active, and uh, and I think that's fantastic what you do at McFan. So thank you for that. Um, and Lisa, tomorrow, 9 o'clock at the Thirsty Cowboy, right? Yep, tomorrow, 9 o'clock, Thirsty Cowboy there on Route go. 18, right by 71, and... Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Flynn 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.